This is Seeger Gray and Rob McClure with your local news, coming to you live via the WORT studios in beautiful downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines. The Wisconsin Elections Commission split along party lines on whether to provide new guidance to more than 1,800 clerks on how to handle absentee ballots after the Supreme Court ruled that ballot drop boxes are illegal. Wisconsin Public Radio reports that Republican members supported having the commission provide guidance to clerks to help them understand the ruling. Democrats argued it's unclear what the commission can tell them without creating confusion or legal challenges. Democratic commissioners rejected that motion, saying they have no authority to order people to show ID and that the court's ruling made clear the commission doesn't have the power to make up new stuff. Republican candidate for Governor Tim Michaels has said that if elected, he would not rule out a measure decertifying the state's 2020 election results. That's according to the Associated Press. Michaels, who has been endorsed by former President Donald Trump, has made his statement after one, one day after Trump's renewed call to decertify the state's vote following the ruling of the state Supreme Court on absentee voting drop boxes. Neither Michaels nor Trump said if they thought that Trump's 2016 electoral victory in Wisconsin should be decertified due to use of drop boxes in that election. The Wisconsin Examiner reports today that two retired DNR foresters have filed complaints against the DNR and a number of lumber companies for ignoring rules on tree harvesting on northern Wisconsin lakes. Current DNR rules protect trees within 100 feet of a lake shoreline on state property. If a lumber company cuts trees on state land, they must maintain roughly the same tree density. Now, the former foresters charge that the same companies that have violated these rules are on a committee to establish new rules. They also say that the new rules eliminate much of the protections for the lakes and animal habitats. The DNR disagrees with those claims and said they have hired independent auditors to investigate. However, the auditors are chosen and paid by the DNR. Lumber companies state that they have fully complied with the current DNR rules. The Wisconsin State Journal reports that a federal judge in Madison ruled that the Sun Prairie School District did not engage in racial discrimination against two African-American students when their middle school class was asked to describe how they would, quote, punish a slave who refused to comply with an order. The judge wrote, quote, a reasonable jury certainly could find that its content and timing were offensive, insensitive, and justifiably upset the students and their families, but a hostile environment claim requires much more than a single upsetting episode, end quote. The three teachers who were responsible for the assignment were put on administrative leave and later resigned. In the Madison Common Council's first in-person meeting in more than two years last night, they voted to set limits on residential lighting. The change reduces the permitted brightness of unshielded light fixtures from 1,000 lumens to 500. That's the equivalent of replacing a 70-watt light bulb with a 40-watt bulb. The 16-2 vote was only the second change to the city's light ordinance since its creation in 1993. City staff said their approach to light violations will be driven by complaints and not random inspections. The council also voted to establish a new tax district in the State Street area and expand a district along Wilson Street. The new district will provide $4 million in grants to businesses and $15 million in public improvements. 
And now, on to today's top stories. Candidates vying in the Democratic primary for U.S. Senate will appear in a televised debate this Sunday. But only five of the eight registered Democratic candidates hoping to unseat Ron Johnson made the cut. Here's our reporter, Reed Kamai. Two candidates running in the Democratic primary for U.S. Senate are taking umbrage that they won't be included in an upcoming televised debate. The candidates, Peter Pekarski and Dr. Darrell Williams, had planned yesterday to hold a rally outside the Milwaukee studios of TMJ4, the NBC affiliate hosting the televised debate this Sunday. The rally, which in the end did not take place, was to protest what they described as, quote, voter suppression, end quote, in their exclusion from the station's upcoming debate with other candidates for the nomination. Dr. Williams, who previously was the state administrator of the Wisconsin Emergency Management Agency, says that he, unlike other candidates, did not receive an invitation from TMJ4 to join the debate. And so they, they had sent this information out to four other candidates uh, in May, but had not sent it to uh, the four candidates in question um, until I asked for it. I said, can you all send me the information? because I want to see the email. So they sent it to me later on that day, June 21st. And I said, well, when, when is the deadline for this? And they said June 30th. The June 30 deadline was to meet any one of the qualification criteria for the debate. To qualify, candidates were required to have at least 5% support in the most recent Marquette Law School polling or in any poll approved by 538, or an average of 5% from the two Marquette polls prior to that, or at least 5,000 individual donations to the campaign. Both Pekarski and Williams are registered candidates and will appear on the primary ballot in August. A third candidate, Ku Lee, will also appear on the primary ballot this August, but will not appear in the debate on Sunday. Peter Pekarski raised about $32,500 in an eight-month period ending in March, according to the latest filings from the Federal Elections Commission. He told WORT in a call today that he especially took issue with TMG4's donation criterion. Dr. Williams raised about $25,300 in the same eight-month period ending in March, according to the same latest filings from the Federal Elections Commission. He says TMJ4 shouldn't have a different set of requirements for the debate than what the state requires to appear on the ballot. You know, my thought was, you know, we've done everything that we need to do to get on the ballot. I don't understand why a, uh, uh, a news station uh, would circumvent the uh, criteria of the state and then exclude uh, uh, what was then four candidates from, from being a part of the televised debate in the most widely and anticipated U.S. Senate election within Wisconsin's history. Tim Vetcher, news director at TMJ4, told WORT in a statement that, quote, TMJ4 News does not include or exclude candidates from the debate. We set the standards for inclusion in the debate, and the candidates themselves qualify. The Federal Communications Commission simply asks stations, such as TMJ4, set reasonable criteria for determining who qualifies for inclusion in a televised debate. We believe we've done that in this instance. Dr. Williams says that debates like this one can be an opportunity for undecided voters to learn about the candidates. Months ago, 48% of the people per the same Marquette poll said that they were unsure and uncomfortable with the people who they're trying to highlight in platform and that they wanted to hear the voices of all the candidates on the ballot. So now, at, uh, uh, most recently, you had 36%, still 36% of the people in Wisconsin say that they want to hear from these candidates via the televised debate, 
and make an informed decision because they don't know who they want to vote for. And this very opportunity is being denied to them. In the Marquette Law School polls in February, April, and June, the don't know option received a greater percentage of votes than the highest polling candidate, which in all three instances was Lieutenant Governor Mandela Barnes. The debate takes place on Sunday, June 17th at 6 p.m. It will be broadcast live on TMJ4 and on their website. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Reed Kamai. Governor Evers and other top state Democrats held a press conference this morning to outline the stakes of the upcoming elections as part of a national Democratic campaign. WORT reporter Tegan Carter has the story. This week is the Defend Choice Week of Action, a campaign from national Democrats working to mobilize voters after the fall of federal abortion protections. As part of that national campaign, supporters sporting signs with the slogan Defend Choice gathered with the press this morning inside a cramped room at the Democratic Party of Wisconsin's headquarters on the Capitol Square. Dane County Supervisor April Kigea kicked off the event. She criticized Republican candidates for governor who have vowed to enforce Wisconsin's harsh 19th century abortion plan in the wake of Dobbs. People of color and low-income people who are already very vulnerable have worse health care outcomes and oftentimes struggle to access medical care. The GOP attacks on abortion have real consequences for Wisconsinites. We cannot have people in office who do not support a person's right to make their own decisions about their reproductive care. In anticipation of the fall of abortion protections in June, State Representative Lisa Subek introduced a proposal to preserve reproductive rights in Wisconsin. Today, she said she was concerned that a win by Republicans in November would mean even fewer reproductive rights. This is personal. The stakes are high. Abortion is on the ballot. And it's not just abortion. It is about the freedom to make our own decisions about when and if we start a family. It is about our freedom to set a course for our own futures. That is what it's, what's at stake with the Dobbs decision. This isn't just about abortion. It's about who decides. It is about our basic freedom. It is about whether you can make choices for yourself that affect you, your family, and your future, or whether you believe politicians should make that for you. Meanwhile, Governor Evers told today's attendees that he would grant clemency to those who provided abortion care in spite of the 1858 ban. So this is a watershed time for Democrats in the state of Wisconsin. And I, and I take it, you know, I know this is, uh, we're in Democratic Party headquarters, but there are Republicans that care about this issue too. There are independents who care about this issue too. I hear from them every single day. Governor Evers alleged that after a decades-long conservative push to overturn Roe, his Republican opponents are now scrambling to make things like inflation their driving issue. It's because they're ducking their 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 position on on on, on uh, abortions. Uh, if if they can't talk about you know making lemonade out of lemons, for God's sakes. And and Michael's, I, I can't remember his comment, but it was equally egregious around this issue. Um, that's why they're not talking about. It. They're going to talk about uh, you know roads, but they, uh, yes, all those issues are important. Are people going to be making decisions on, on re-electing me on all sorts of other things? Of course. According to the latest poll of registered voters from Marquette Law School, which was conducted prior to the Dobbs decision, inflation was of the most concern with 75% of voters feeling very concerned. Abortion policy was cited as very concerning by 58% of voters. The August 9th partisan primary is now less than four weeks away. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Tegan Carter. 
Well, if you tuned in yesterday, you heard local and state officials reacting to the state Supreme Court decision last week to make absentee ballot drop boxes illegal. But that ruling could have larger implications affecting the Wisconsin Elections Commission, especially in light of a case the court will be taking up next year. Here's Jonah Chester from the Wisconsin News Connection. In its next session, the U.S. Supreme Court will weigh a congressional gerrymandering case out of North Carolina. The court's ruling could have a significant impact on the bipartisan Wisconsin Elections Commission. The case centers around the independent state legislature theory, which holds that legislatures have broad authority to manage federal elections and redistricting. Ethan Herrenstein with the Brennan Center for Justice says the most extreme version of the theory could bar legislatures from sharing any election power with other state actors. And that would mean that the Wisconsin Elections Commission wouldn't be permitted to help run federal elections, even if the legislature asked it to. You know, the ISLT is radical. This would be doubly so. In another scenario, which Herrenstein says the court is unlikely to endorse, the legislature could pass a law dissolving or diminishing the power of the Elections Commission, and Governor Tony Evers would be unable to veto it as it pertains to federal elections. The Bipartisan Elections Commission has recently found itself in GOP crosshairs as many Republican legislators allege it's mishandled the state's elections and have called for its dissolution. A ruling endorsing the independent state legislature theory would have far-reaching implications, specifically in the realm of redistricting. According to the Brennan Center, the principle could be used to block state courts from weighing in on federal redistricting cases. Herrenstein argues that's a serious problem since a prior Supreme Court ruling blocked federal courts from weighing partisan gerrymandering claims. So in short, if the Supreme Court were to rule for the gerrymanderers in North Carolina, that might mean that state legislatures are free when it comes to congressional elections to gerrymander to their heart's delight and to be no court available to stop them. Beherenstein adds federal courts still could consider cases where lawmakers break other federal election and redistricting rules, such as racial gerrymandering. The Supreme Court will likely hand down a ruling in the North Carolina case next summer. For the Wisconsin News Connection, I'm Jonah Chester. Find our eight trust indicators to support transparency and accuracy at publicnewsservice.org. The time is now 6.20 and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. With abortion access being cut off here in the state of Wisconsin, one clinic on the northern border of Illinois is looking to help Wisconsin residents find the reproductive care they need. WORT producer Nate Wiggehaupt spoke with Jeannie Bissell, the president of the Rockford Family Planning Foundation, about how they hope to help Wisconsin residents. With the U.S. Supreme Court's ruling overturning Roe v. Wade, abortion is now banned here in Wisconsin, except in cases that threaten the life of the mother. But just south of us in Illinois, abortion is still legal and protected. More specifically, it is legal and protected down in Rockford, Illinois, just a little over an hour south of Madison on I-90. With me today is Jeannie Bissell, president of the Rockford Family Planning Foundation. Jeannie, thank you so much for coming on and talking with me here today. Absolutely. So just to start things off here, Jeannie, can tell me a little bit about the Rockford Family Planning Foundation. Uh, how, how long have you guys been there and what do you offer? Okay. Well, we are a very new, small, nonprofit group of physicians, nurse, nurses, reproductive rights activists, philanthropists that have known each other for quite a while. And when the Supreme Court overturn Roe v. Wade, 
um, we decided that we wanted to make sure that our patients from the Dane County area and central and, and south Wisconsin would have a place to go that was convenient and good that would provide safe and legal abortion. And our mission is to get this done. We didn't feel that there was the capacity to have patients go down to inner city Chicago. Um, I understand also Waukegan and possibly Aurora will be taking patients. Um, there's also the Family Planning Associates, which is down near Chicago, but we felt like we needed something closer. Um, a lot of our patients are low income. Uh, they're people of many times people of color. And we needed something convenient and not too far and not too overwhelming to get that care that they needed. Have you been in contact with other other clinics in the area and things like that? I know you used to uh, work with Planned Parenthood there, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, have you been in contact with anyone else about coordinating your support? Oh, absolutely. We're in contact with um, Planned Parenthood of Wisconsin, and they're very supportive. Um, obviously, before they send patients, they'll want to know that everything is, is up to their standards, and we feel very confident that we'll not only be top-tier standards, but really state-of-the-art. Um, our physicians are all top-tier physicians, that their, their mission is they believe in comprehensive gynecological care, and you have to have abortion care. You can't really have comprehensive gynecological care without abortion. Um, there's too many uncertainties. There's high-risk pregnancies. There's ectopic pregnancies. There's fetal anomalies. Um, there's all sorts of situations where it's absolutely essential that the pregnancy needs to be terminated. So um, every patient will be, com- will be treated with compassion and care, and no patients, no women, or um, people, pregnant people, will be turned away. And that, that actually works as a good segue to my next question is, have you been in contact with the Women's Medical Fund of Wisconsin? And how, how are you sort of working, working to make sure that nobody gets turned away? Oh, yes, sir. Um, they're very supportive. Um, we know the folks that run that, and they've been just really awesome in, in their mission and um, for many, many, many years. And we will be coordinating with them, and they make do- those decisions as to what, what patients and under what circumstances. But I know we'll be working with them, but we'll also put together, once we get our startup costs taken care of, We'll put together a, uh, a justice fund to help those that um, need that financial assistance. We will not turn anybody away. And now, you said that you started working on this uh, with the Supreme Court ruling, uh, which was a couple of weeks ago. Have, have you opened up your clinic yet? Have you been able to take in any patients? Oh, no. Um, Denny Christensen purchased the building about a month ago, and so we're in a full renovation. Um, the building was essentially gutted, and there is a lot of work to be done. Um, our mission as, as a nonprofit, as a, as a board, will be to hire all the staff, make sure they all have their correct licensing in Illinois. Um, we need to purchase all the medical equipment, medical supplies, um, pharmacology, security, 
fencing. Um, we'll probably have a security guard as we want to make sure that everybody is safe. We want our patients and our providers to feel safe and secure and not threatened and, and traumatized when they're either going to work or getting that care. Now, your clinic, it's down there in Rockford, and obviously I don't think that you'll be turning people away from anywhere, wherever they come from, but it, it seems like you will really be looking for the people up here in Wisconsin. And the Republicans and the state legislator here in Wisconsin have stated that they're uh, debating making it illegal to go across state borders to seek an abortion. What, what are sort of your thoughts on that? I don't think that it's legal to keep U.S. citizens, American citizens, from crossing a state line to get health care, and it's still health care. Um, I don't think so. We will, get, we will cross that bridge when we get to it, but there are a lot of really smart people that are working on those issues that are attorneys and, and prosecutors, and I'll leave that up to them. Senate Democrats over in the U.S. Senate are are working on a piece of legislation just to be sure to protect people's ability to travel across state lines uh, to acquire reproductive care like that. So, uh, Jeannie, I think that's all the, the questions that I have for you here. Do you have just any final thoughts of anything that we didn't touch on that you'd like to share? Well, we, we do have to raise quite a bit of money. And so if they would if folks that are listening would like to donate, no matter how much, um, I can I can give you that address, um, and we will also be putting together a volunteer operation to possibly help uh, folks with with rides. Um, we'll be helping with gas cards, and so if there's anybody that would like to get further involved, please let me know because this is a community based operation. We have a couple. Um, folks in Rockford that want to participate on our board. So we want to make sure that it's a wide variety of people that are involved. I've been talking with Jeannie Bissell, president of the Rockford Family Planning Foundation. Uh, Jeannie, thank you so much for coming on and talking with me here today. Absolutely. Thank you, sir. Take care. The time is now 6.32, and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. I'm your host, Robert McClure, here with my co-host, Seeger Gray. Thanks for staying with us. Every month, Dane County invests thousands of man-hours into the removal of weeds from its waters. Eleven specially made boats work all summer to clear the shallows of local lakes and the Yahara River. On this week's Parks and Landmarks, Sean Bull takes a closer look at the operation and tries his hand at running one of those boats himself. You're listening to Parks and Landmarks, an exploration of the underrated outdoors. I'm Sean Bull. Madison is defined by its lakes. Without our forish lakes and the Yahara River which links and feeds them, we would be no better than Lincoln, Nebraska a C-tier city known only for its state government and better-than-average football team. The lakes bless us with recreation opportunities and a picturesque skyline, but they don't always work in our favor. 
Madison and its surrounding communities were largely built on wetlands, so it's not infrequent that some of the land attempts to return to being wet. As recently as 2018, the city saw catastrophic flooding as Mendota surged over its imposed boundaries and swept into low-lying isthmus neighborhoods. The flood has since receded, our basements have dried, but it's a constant battle to ensure that this sort of thing doesn't happen again. One way to prevent future floods would be to allow Lake Mendota to lose some water. A lower lake, after all, can hold more rain. But it's not, unfortunately, as simple as just opening the Tenny Lock and Dam. Mendota's level is controlled by the state, and there's opposition from local homeowners who prefer high waters for boating. I've talked about this before, and likely will again, but not today. Instead, I'd like to highlight another way to prevent floods. Cutting plants out of the river system. The principle behind this is simple. Water can flow through the river and lakes faster if any plants in the way are removed. The faster water can flow, the less the system might flood in the future. In the Yahara chain and beyond, plant removal is handled by the Dane County Land and Water Resources Department. The county has a fleet of boats purpose-built for this task. If you've visited a waterfront park in the summer, you've probably seen one parked at least once. Each weed harvester looks slightly different, but you'll know one when you see it. The boats are about 40 feet long and 8 feet wide, flat-bottomed and with a hydraulically controlled ramp on either end. The front ramp can be lowered into the water, and its leading edge is lined with 2-inch metal teeth, which make short work of any weed our lakes can produce. These teeth would perhaps be most directly compared with a hedge trimmer, but to me, they look like a giant barber's clippers. At the flip of a switch, two rows of teeth slide back and forth over each other, neatly slicing whatever crosses their path. The whole boat, front to back, is basically a big grocery store conveyor belt, meant to efficiently pull plants from the water. But instead of vinyl, or whatever normal conveyor belts are made of, these are all metal links, visually a cross between a bicycle chain and a chain-link fence. The operators call them screens. These screens move just like a normal conveyor, but are strong enough to hold a literal ton of waterlogged plant cuttings. And more importantly, the holes allow water to drain right back into the lake so the boat doesn't become any heavier than it needs to. The flat middle of the boat is layered, with another screen on the bottom, then a frame and catwalk for the engine and pilot three feet above. A diesel engine runs constantly to power the hydraulics, which in turn power everything else. The operator sits in a chair with a lever on either side, a few pedals at their feet, and a few more switches on an instrument panel off to the right. The left and right lever each control the speed and direction of a corresponding paddle wheel on the left and right side of the boat. These wheels are the cutter's method of locomotion, and one of their most distinctive outward features. These bright red painted wheels, each maybe five feet across, are slow and somewhat inefficient, but they only skim a few inches into the water, helping the cutters navigate even the shallowest of bays. And unlike propellers, they'll never get bound up in weeds, which is, like, the main requirement for a boat in this line of work. Additionally, being mounted on either side in the middle of the boat, they're perfectly placed to allow the harvester to turn on a dime as one wheel paddles forward and the other in reverse. These boats are a lot more nimble than their size and shape would imply. 
I know this firsthand because I got to drive one. I'm still not sure how this was approved. Don't get me wrong, I'm about as qualified as any pretend journalist could be, but I didn't flash my forklift certification or my boating license beforehand. I don't think I have a particularly trustworthy face. I guess what it comes down to is just that the folks at the LWRD are just nice people. That, and these boats just aren't that hard to drive. I got the hang of it pretty quick, and soon I was cutting and collecting weeds of my own. As I went along, I would look down every few seconds and inspect my haul. As the front screen rolls upwards, it carries a mat of cut weeds into the belly of the boat beneath my feet. Sometimes, it caught other things that happened to float near the surface. The occasional stick isn't uncommon, and sometimes it would carry up a small silver fish or two, still alive and flopping in shock at their sudden change of scenery. The fish didn't suffer for long, as the boat is watched at all times by hungry pairs of eyes. Most animals seem to be wary of the weed harvesters, but Lake Monona's grackles are fearless. They race out from the shore just inches from the water, then swoop up to land on one of the boat's outer rails. Often, they sit just feet from the operator, with no fear of getting eaten themselves. Obviously, the weed cutter drivers are always deferential to local wildlife. But most birds don't know that. It isn't even that grackles are a particularly brave species. My ride-along partner, Don, told me that this only happens on Lake Monona and nowhere else. Somehow, these specific birds have gotten it through their iridescent blue heads that the harvesters are their friends. And you know what? As long as I'm behind the helm, they're absolutely right. As I went about my harvesting business, I was struck by how comfortable I was. It happened to be an exceptionally calm day on Lake Monona, but even so, I expected my seat to be vibrating from the engine. I expected the wheels to spray me every time I went into reverse. I expected to not be able to escape the smell of rotting lakeweed. Yet, I cruised across the lake, comfy, dry, and more or less smell-free. The task was somewhat akin to mowing my parents' lawn, but this was the most relaxed I've ever been doing any kind of yard work. After collecting all the grass we had cut, I was driven back to shore and dropped off next to a waiting dump truck. The second half of the weed harvesting team is a small fleet of trucks and trailers with another conveyor to lift weeds in over the back. Weeds are expelled off the boat's rear ramp, elevated into the dump truck, and hauled off to a remote site where people don't have to smell them decomposing. It's hard to know just how effective this program really is. Dane County has been removing weeds this way for decades, but we do still get floods sometimes. Are these floods less bad than they could be because the weeds are cut out? Likely yes, but it's hard to compare apples to apples with any other city. The program could always be expanded, but we already have the largest fleet of weed cutter boats anywhere in the country. If we really want to prevent floods, this can't be our only tool. A holistic approach would include protecting and restoring wetlands and lowering the lakes so that they can handle more rain. But until we can make that happen, the weed cutting team is doing good work. Next time you're out by the water and you spot one of these peculiar paddle boats, give the driver a wave or a thumbs up. They'll appreciate it, I'm sure. And if you want to be one of those people, keep an eye out for Dane County job postings in February and March. On that note, 
I'd like to give a special thanks to Pete and Don at the County Land and Water Resources Department. Without all they did to accommodate me, this story would have been a lot less interesting to listen to. If you'd like to suggest a topic for Parks and Landmarks to cover, please send it my way at sean.bull at wardfm.org. Tell me about your favorite underrated spot outdoors, or whatever you feel is related. This segment's title is intentionally broad, so just go for it. I'd love to hear from you guys. Again, that's S-E-A-N dot B-U-L-L at W-O-R-T-F-M dot org. For W-O-R-T News, I'm Sean Bull. It's time now for the most comprehensive weather report on the airwaves with W-O-R-T weather guru Rob McClure. Well, we had a pretty temperate week so far that we did get some slightly better mixing and resulting higher temperatures on Monday than I was expecting. We hit 87 degrees after we cleared skies in the afternoon and winds veered westerly and the dew points started to drop. And since then, we hit 83 yesterday and 78 so far this afternoon. So temperatures pretty close to the seasonal normals for mid-July, uh, which just for reference are 82 for a high temperature and 62 for a low. All of which would generally be thought to be good, since as I mentioned on the Monday morning forecast, the longer-range computer models have been hinting at a longer-term warm-up as we get out into the third and fourth weeks of the month. That's now looking uh, perhaps slightly delayed and possibly also not quite as intense, at least as it had looked, uh, or potentially also not over so long a period of time. And I'll try to flesh out some of those prospects for the future in a moment. The overall pattern in the upper air currently is one that you'll be familiar with if you have a look at the uh, at that pattern on the water vapor uh, image of North America that's on the WORT weather webpage this evening. A typical summertime configuration there with upper troughing generally holding sway near the coasts of the continent or in the adjacent oceans offshore and upper ridging in between there over the mid part of the continent. You'll note, though, uh, if you're looking at that image, that really the trough ridge trough pattern is displaced to the west overall with the apex of the ridge holding along a meridian stretching through about uh, central Montana or western Saskatchewan with much of the eastern third of the country actually under the downstream upper trough or at least uh, there on an intermittent basis like we've seen here once short waves traveling around the ridge pass by us. Uh, the longer range models have been slightly too enthusiastic in advancing the upper ridge eastward against what continues to be a notably robust upper low and surface cold pool that's sitting uh, to our northeast over the Ungava Peninsula and Hudson's Bay region of Canada. A pretty large feature. You can see that plainly on the water vapor swirling counterclockwise and regularly, ma regularly making forays south into the Great Lakes each time especially the upper ridge to our west builds northward and looks like it might finally begin to move eastward over us. Another factor in play that might retard the incoming warm air and upper ridging, and it looks like we may see some of this play out over the coming days, is that because we remain close to that strip of thermal contrast between the ridge to our southwest and the trough to our northeast here in the western Great Lakes, the rounds of thunderstorms that tend to get generated when that ridge advances into the cooler air 
Those tend to cool and restabilize the lower atmosphere, and that uh, helps effectively push the frontal boundary back west and south each time it makes an ingress this direction. Uh, Indeed, the way the short-range models are looking for Friday, and again, uh, for the period Saturday into Sunday, that exact process may end up playing out with good sessions of showers and thunderstorms, the way it's appearing, riding into the area from the northwest and keeping temperatures generally down through rain and cloud cover on the weekend, though we're likely to see the dew points rise up and get stuck near 70, so humid in any case. And then farther out, it appears that a deeper dive into the heat uh, previously scheduled by the models for sometime next week may also get held off at least for a few more days. Uh, No obvious uh, ridging holding over this part of the North American continent uh, for a week or 10 days or more, the way it's appearing now. But getting back to tonight, remaining uh, cumulus that are in the sky should uh, continue to dissipate, leaving skies mostly clear through the overnight period. Temperatures will drop to the upper 50s on light northeasterly winds, generally coming down to calm. Tomorrow, clear skies through much of the day should allow temperatures to hit 80 or so on light easterly winds veering southeast at 3 to 7 miles per hour later in the day. We may see high cloud debris uh, coming in from the northwest as we get on towards sunset or during the overnight hours. Temperatures will drop to the low 60s tomorrow night on southeasterly winds at 4 to 8 miles per hour. And then showers, uh, possibly with some intermittent thunderstorms, will roll into the area from the northwest sometime on Friday morning. There's still a good bit of disagreement on where those storms will track exactly and just when on the modeling. It looks like we may see them track along the uh, western periphery of a warm frontal boundary that will be approaching from Iowa and Minnesota. So the western parts of the listening area may see most of the precipitation from this first episode on Friday. And rains can could be heavy at times, given the amount of moisture that will be in the atmosphere. Uh, those storms look to clear south and eastward as we get later in the day Friday, and temperatures will be held uh, probably to the upper 70s or perhaps 80 and subtly winds at 5 to 10 miles per hour. We'll drop back to the upper 60s during the overnight with uh, some clearing, but uh, with light winds and lingering high dew points uh, up in the mid or upper 60s, I suspect we may retain some of our low cloud cover going into Saturday. And Saturday, it appears uh, we should have a dry period, I think, through much of the day, though again, the modeling consensus uh, on Saturday is far from clear. A fair bit of cloud cover should hold us in the low 80s with dew points up around 70 on light southerly winds. Another round of showers or thunderstorms is then likely uh, on or in the overnight uh, on the Saturday night or in uh, going into Sunday morning with a muggy low around 70. And we'll stay muggy and warmish, uh, but not exactly hot on Sunday with a high temperature back in the low 80s that day. At the moment at the station on Bedford Street, the temperature is 79 degrees. The dew point temperature is 60. Winds are out of the north at 8 miles per hour. Uh, mostly clear skies now, just a few cumulus left up at about 6,500 feet. And the barometer is at 30.04 inches of mercury and holding steady over the past few hours. It's now 6.49 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. We go now to July 1964, when the UW focused on civil rights, Vietnam, and feminism, while the city dealt with skimpy bathing suits, troublesome teens, and legendary musicians. Stu Levitan has the news from 58 years ago this month on tonight's Madison in the 60s. 
Madison in the 60s, July 1964. As the month opens, the UW chapter of the Friends of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee is raising bail money and gathering supplies for the so-called Freedom Summer Voter Registration Drive in the Deep South, where several UW students have already been arrested. But a pall hangs over the effort, as former UW student Andrew Goodman has neither been heard from nor found since he and fellow civil rights workers Mickey Schwerner and James Cheney disappeared in Neshoba County, Mississippi on June 21st. Campus administrators joined the movement as they and colleagues from three historically black colleges and universities convened their Committee on Cooperation to start planning a groundbreaking faculty exchange program. Local faculty will visit three schools in North Carolina and Texas for stays ranging from a week to a full year in residence, while the black faculty will come north for insights into new methods of instruction and administration, and to enlighten the UW faculty about the unique problems they face in the segregated South. Economics professor Jack Barbash says the exchange program, funded by the Carnegie Foundation, shows that UW's approach to addressing, quote, the greatest social problem of our time, civil rights. A recent headcount revealed there are fewer than 100 black Americans at the UW, including 21 from Wisconsin, two fewer than the number from Nigeria, part of a contingent of about 50 black Africans. Foreign policy takes center stage on the 19th when three graduate students tell the Socialist Club that the U.S. should get out of Vietnam before the conflict there becomes a full-scale war. They say that despite its military superiority, America is already losing because it is fighting an authentic independence movement supported by the Vietnamese people. A demonstration has been scheduled for August 6th to protest the growing American involvement. On the 23rd, Betty Friedan, author of the controversial bestseller The Feminine Mystique, gives a talk entitled The Crisis in Women's Identity, Challenge to Education. She tells a predominantly female audience packing Great Hall that women have been conditioned by upbringing, education, and mass media to lose their self-respect as independent human beings capable of being more than just housewives. Friedan calls on educators to, quote, take the responsibility of affirming the image of woman as a person by showcasing successful women and maintains that career or marriage is a false choice. Women are not really free if they are only free to move in the house, she says. And she castigates TV advertising, noting that, quote, in commercials, the big thrill for women is getting their sinks white and still keeping their hands soft and feminine. Living her message, the married mother of three closes with a clarion call for self-determination. Quote, Women are not equal to men unless they assume equality. Equality can't be given to someone. Women must be willing to leave their private hiding place, test themselves, and write their own story in the world. The UW professor who knows most about how mass media affects public policy gets good news. As Professor Lee Dreyfus general manager at WHTV, is promoted to associate director of television. Dr. Dreyfus will continue to teach in the speech department where he received his Ph.D. in 1957. 
The state of Wisconsin also has something to celebrate, as about 200 people, most of them state employees, attend the dedication of the five-building, $12 million Hill Farms State Office Building Complex on the 20th. There is probably not another office building in Wisconsin that houses people whose functions are so vital to the continuance of an orderly society as this one, says Governor John Reynolds, citing building tenants the Public Service Commission, Industrial Commission, and Department of Motor Vehicles. Nothing to celebrate for women interested in the controversial topless bathing suits designed by Rudy Gernrich, First, City Attorney Edwin Conrad says he will prosecute any woman wearing the suit in public. Then he says that, quote, the merchants of Madison owe it to the citizens here not to perpetuate this hysterical insanity that's going on, and calls on, quote, all the citizens of the city, and particularly the clergy, to back me up on this. So Manchester's department store, which quickly sold one suit, returns the remaining five it had ordered. Store President Morgan Manchester is a bit conflicted. Everybody who has any style sense at all is selling them, he says. I personally don't think they are in very good taste, but I don't want to pass moral judgment on them. It's easy to pass moral judgment on those Madisonians who are doing wrong at city parks and beaches. Parks Superintendent James Marshall reports there have been more than two dozen incidents recently, including a burglary at a city beach house, motorcycles being ridden through picnic areas, teenagers using obscene language, and engaging in immoral activity. Most disturbing of all, someone stuffed a dead dog through a beach house window. The increase in crime and vandalism comes after Mayor Henry Reynolds cut $7,500 for special park patrols from the police department budget. Money the council restores at the request of Marshall and Police Chief Wilbur Emery over the mayor's objections. Hot rodders are in hot water as local judges crack down on young drivers drag racing around the Capitol Square. Under a new policy announced by Judge William Byrne and endorsed by his judicial colleagues, Drivers who gun their motors and make a fast start from a stoplight will be convicted of racing and assessed six points, whether or not they're actually racing another car. Previously, when there was no proof drivers had made a prior agreement to race, charges were reduced to speeding, a three-point violation. Byrne, a former Dane County District Attorney, calls on the police department to, quote, station as many officers as they feel necessary on the Capitol Square in order to stamp this out completely. And on back-to-back nights, the 200 block of State Street is the place for musical greatness. On the 22nd, jazz immortal Louis Armstrong delights a capacity Orpheum Theater crowd of all ages with the infectious jazz of his native New Orleans. And, of course, his recent number one hit, Hello, Dolly. The next night surfs up across the street as top pop group The Beach Boys bring the summer sounds of Southern California, including their recent number one hit, I Get Around, to a Capitol Theater filled mainly with screaming teenage girls. And that's this week's Madison in the 60s. For your award-winning, listener-supported, summer-celebrating WRT News team, I'm Stu Levitan.
And that does it for our show. Thanks for listening to WORT's live local news at 6. Our headline writer this evening was David Ahrens. Our reporters were Reed Kamai and Tegan Carter. Kristen Billings and Emily Casinger were on special assignment. Special thanks to our feature contributors, Sean Bull and Stu Levitan. Nate Carlin engineered tonight's broadcast, seeming, seamlessly mixing our sounds on air. Nate Wecky helped produce the newscast, and Shelley Pittman is the news director here at WORT. I'm your host, Robert McClure. And I'm your host, Seeger Gray. Stay up to date with the WORT local news podcast. Subscribe on iTunes Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Up next is Query, followed by This Way Out. Good night. <laughs>